This week's TribCast is sponsored by... Listen to the new Raise Your Hand Texas podcast, Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast. And the University of Houston Hobby School of Public Affairs establishes Elizabeth D. Rockwell Center on Ethics and Leadership with a $6.5 million endowment. Read more on texastribune.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for October 7th, 2020. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. There's so much news happening today that we could only pull away two reporters to join this podcast. So instead of our usual four-person team, we've got a three-person team today. I'm joined by Justice and Politics reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. And uh, state politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Hello. Thank you guys for joining us. So, among the kind of uh, many crazy news events that have happened in the past week, um, some of our uh, Saturdays were ruined by some big re- revelations <laughs> out of the Texas Attorney General's office, where news broke that seven top aides to Ken Paxton have uh, essentially accused Ken Paxton of a crime um, and violating, uh, you know, the ethics of his office and reported him to authorities um, and basically raised concerns, setting up a, you know, a bunch of big questions about kind of what's going on at the attorney general's office right now. And also, you know, adding to the possible legal challenges that the state's top lawyer are facing is facing right now. Emma, you kind of jumped on this story as the news broke and have been following it ever since. Can you kind of walk us through what's happening here? Yeah, so on Saturday night, we got word that it was a story first reported in the Austin American Statesman and by KBU TV that seven of the most senior aides in the Texas Attorney General's office had asked law enforcement to look into what they thought might be potential criminal violations by their boss and the Uh, They didn't give a lot of details about what those might be, but they did mention bribery and abuse of office uh, in a letter to the agency's human resources director. And um, I did just a cursory look at the organizational chart for the agency just to get a sense of who are these folks. And they really are seven of the dozen or so most senior people in the agency. These are folks who would be working with Paxton day in and day out. Um, They are all, of course, people who have a lot of legal expertise and um, in some cases, folks who've been in the office for many years. And and also importantly, um, in some cases, more than others, folks who have kind of similar conservative credentials to Paxton, most notably in the case of Jeff Mateer, who uh, was one of the signees of the letter and has until recently served as Paxton's top aide. He actually resigned on Friday, uh, right before all of this news came out. But Mateer comes from the First Liberty Institute, which is the very conservative uh, religious freedom impact litigation firm headquartered in North Texas. And um, Mateer actually was up for a nomination to the federal bench a few years ago, and Senate declined to confirm him after revelations about some homophobic language he's used in the past. So um, all that to say, 
these are people whose allegations are hard to dismiss. These are people who worked with Paxton closely, who have legal expertise, who have longevity at the agency, and who, um, at least notably in the case of Mateer, can't really be dismissed as um, political actors coming for Paxton because of his conservative bent. This, yeah, this isn't the deep state here of, you know, kind of liberal bureaucrats uh, speaking out against their conservative boss, it does not seem. I mean, one of the things that really struck me about this, and I think struck a lot of people, was, as you said, it's not just, you know, one kind of whistleblower. It's not, you know, peop- a mass exodus for undisclosed reasons or anything like that. It is, you know, a very big portion of... Paxton's top staff being fairly explicit that they think something is wrong is going on here. Um, I mean, really just kind of a a striking revelation um, on Saturday night. Uh, You mentioned before that we still don't really know what the specific allegations or, uh, you know, what it is that these employees specifically think was done. But one name that has kind of come up in all of this is the name Nate Paul. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about who he is and and how he may or may not factor into this? Yeah, so we've seen some reporting both in the Houston Chronicle and in the Austin American Statesman that links these allegations to Nate Paul. He's an Austin area um, real estate magnate, and he is someone who's given money to Paxton in the past, as well as to a number of other Republican leaders in the state. And um, those two news outlets have obtained a text message from Matier to Paxton sent last week saying basically that we think you have um, committed crimes tied to your relationship with Nate Paul. So the the specifics of this, and a lot of this is sort of still coming out and there are some questions, but um, what the allegation is, is that Paxton uh, appointed a special prosecutor through his office to probe um, actions of adversaries of Paul to sort of go after Paul's enemies and then uh, those subpoenas were were quashed by a judge here in Austin. So that's what we know so far. There are some other sort of ties between Paxton and Paul that uh, reporters at the Tribune and I'm sure elsewhere in the state are digging a lot more into now. So more to come on that. Uh, just before we go any further, just want to say that Paxton himself has called these allegations false. He's called these seven whistleblowers rogue employees. Um, and the agency has also all but signaled that they are actually investigating the people who made the complaint against Paxton. So it's kind of, you can't investigate us, we're investigating you. Um, and they they won't give a lot of details about that, but a spokeswoman for the agency told us on Saturday night, just as this was happening, that uh, she believes, at least without providing details, that the allegations were made by these seven against Paxton to impede an investigation that was already happening into them. So um, needless to say, kind of a kind of a mess at the attorney general's office and and a lot of questions still remaining. Cassie, you've been tracking kind of the, the political fallout of all this. What are you hearing? What are the what are the other kind of state leaders and, and uh, politicians in the state saying about this so far? Yeah, so uh, after the initial news wave that Emma kind of detailed for us just a minute ago uh, hit, and once everybody kind of had a pro- you know time to process that, uh, you know, you had Greg Abbott and Lieutenant Governor uh, Governor Greg Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick 
say that the allegations raise serious concerns, but that they're really not going to be commenting any further uh, until the investigation is complete. Um, you know, you had uh, other Republicans, such as Sarah Davis, a Texas House member, uh, a Houston Republican. Uh, you know, she, I think she was like the first, one of the first Republicans to, to really say this this bluntly, but just you know that if Paxton doesn't address these concerns pretty immediately, he needs to respond. Um, and then, kind of in the aftermath of that, you saw uh, Patrick and then other top Republicans, Glenn Hager, George P, uh, say that that they definitely plan to uh, return or recontribute uh, donations that they've received from Nate Paul to other organizations uh, just over the over the years. Um, the, the one exception being, I believe, the Dallas Morning News' Lauren McGaughy reported this, uh, Agriculture Sid Miller, Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller. Um, he's, he's going to wait to see uh, what, if anything, comes from all of these allegations before returning any campaign contributions. So um, all of that to say, um, aside from that chatter about returning campaign contributions, it's been relatively quiet. Um, you know, I think a lot of people just don't really know publicly what to make of all of this, and they want to see how it plays out, uh, you know, tomorrow, next week, next month, before uh, making any sort of, you know, uh, more hardline, uh, you know, taking a more hardline stance on this. And, and it, on that Point. We've seen Paxton. Paxton was indicted more than five years ago on uh, felony securities fraud charges. We, we have no idea whether these latest allegations have anything to do with that case, which is still pending. But we've seen him survive politically despite that, uh, despite those pending charges for years. In 2018, um, didn't draw a Republican primary opponent, which is, you know, arguably sort of the biggest political risk a, a statewide Republican faces in Texas. He narrowly beat his Democratic opponent. And so we've seen state officials um, stick with him or at least not publicly distance from him uh, with those criminal allegations in the past. And so that sort of sets us up for where we are now. So, I mean, what should we be watching for next? Is, is the answer kind of unclear? Uh, to me, there's two kind of questions looking forward. One is, and you touched on this in a previous story, Emma, you know, what does this mean for the attorney general's office during a time where the it's things are, you know, the actions of the attorney general's office are pretty important to say how we run our election in the next month and, you know, the future of healthcare in this country with the Supreme Court case, uh, I think I believe later in November, right, that uh, that Texas is leading the charge on. But then also in the future of Paxton, I mean, is there, do we have any idea of what the next steps are for all this or, or, or how this could possibly be playing out in the future? Well, there's sort of two, two points to that question. One is that people are waiting to hear from law enforcement. We haven't heard anything from um, either federal or, or local authorities. The Travis County District's Attorney District Attorney's Office told me they do not have an investigation. Um, federal authorities have been quiet on this, but they also have a policy of staying quiet on this stuff. So one one live question is, are we going to see charges? Are we going to see an FBI raid? And if so, when? The other question is uh, related to the ongoing you know work of the agency, which is essentially the state's law firm, right? There's more than 4,000 employees across 100 plus offices in state. They have major deadlines coming up in really important cases. Um, a lot of them related to the election. They have a US Supreme Court date on November 10th hearing a case um, about Obamacare. 
Paxton so far is signaling um, that he's not going anywhere. He said that he will not be resigning. Um, and he also replaced one of the seven who resigned, Jeff Mateer, his top aide who left last week. Paxton quickly had a replacement for him on Monday in uh, Brent Webster, a former assistant criminal district attorney from Williamson County. So all the signals Paxton is giving out say, you know, I'm ready to to keep doing this job. I'm going to keep the agency running. Sure. And you spoke with someone who had lunch with him, right, on, uh, I believe that was Monday, right, who, who said, you know, he seemed to be giving the same kind of arguments that are explanations for how he sees this uh, privately, right, that he's he, you know, I believe one thing was that he hadn't hired a defense attorney uh, for all this was was mentioned in that conversation. Yeah, as of Monday, he he told a, a friend over a barbecue in Austin that he hasn't hired an attorney. He hasn't heard from law enforcement. Um, the the what the friend told me was, you know, there's a lot of smoke, but where's the fire? The question, of course, is what are the substance of these allegations? And we just haven't um, seen a lot of that come out yet. Sure. And Paxton, as you mentioned earlier, has proven himself a survivor. He's faced a criminal indictment for over five years. Is that right, Emma? And, More than five uh, years. It yeah. has not, you know, cost him his job up to this point. He is he has won re-election in that time. This, of course, if these, you know, allegations do pan out into some kind of action involving law enforcement, is somewhat different because it involves actions that you know, allegations of things he did kind of in his official capacity. Um, but but still, it will be interesting to, to watch and see how this goes. This is all happening, as we mentioned, right before an election in which there are multiple kind of legal cases and legal fights going on. Uh, Emma, the thing that you were tracking before this came up was uh, all these kind of different voting fights that have been happening. And, you know, since, since we last had a... Uh, uh, Text Tribune Tripcast. We we saw some some major order a major order from uh, Greg Abbott. We've we've seen some court rulings and things like that. Uh, let's let's start with the the mail in ballot drop drop off location. Can you can you walk us through Abbott's order on this and and the the response that it's received? Yeah. So the governor in late July um, said he would expand the time period for early voting by six days, and he also said. He also made another expansion order, which was that voters voting absentee could deliver their ballots in person for a longer time period than they usually have. Normally, that's something you can do on Election Day. He said you can do it earlier. So immediately what we saw is a number of counties. The best two examples are Harris County, home to Houston, and Travis County, home to Austin. And they said, this is great. We're going to open a bunch of locations where voters can come and drop off their ballots Importantly, you know, in some states, these are like mailboxes outside a local church where you could just put your ballot in and walk away. That is not how it works in Texas. You have to come with only your own ballot. You have to come with an approved form of voter identification. And once you get there, you're talking to a worker who verifies your identity before you drop off your ballot. So there's there's uh, layers of security built in. So Travis County said, great, we're going to have four locations. Harris County, which is um, the most populous in Texas and also geographically larger than the state of Rhode Island said they would have about a dozen locations. And those actually had already opened last week and had started accepting ballots when the governor, um, I believe on Thursday, said counties could only have one location each. And the rationale he gave for that was that 
it was important to ensure election integrity. There are some questions around that. I asked his office and haven't received a response what evidence there is that having four locations versus one location in a county where voters have to present ID before they can um, deliver their ballots, what evidence there is that more locations leads to fraud. Um, we, we don't know what evidence the governor is basing his decision on. Uh, what we do know is that there are at least four lawsuits challenging his decision, three of them in federal court here in Austin, one of them in a state district court here in Austin, all saying that they believe the order should be overturned. Um, more to come on that. There's a hearing set for tomorrow, uh, Thursday, before a federal judge in Austin. Um, but, I mean, importantly, the clock is ticking, right? These, these locations were already open before the governor forced them to shut down. So the changes are um, high stakes. Right, because right now, you know, even though these, these lawsuits are pending, the, the, um, the counties are having to follow the order of the governor. And, you know, we've, we've seen some kind of sporadic, um, uh, sporadic, you know, seen a couple pictures of lines in, in Harris County where I think there were a few cars kind of lined up to, to drop off ballots. Um, you know, heard anecdotally that there was a, a pretty long line in, in Bayer County uh, on the first day uh, of, of this week on Monday in which, you know, people were saying it was taking a while to, to get their ballots in. Um, but, but one thing that you noted here that I think really stands out is, is this idea of kind of what makes one location okay, you know, not something that fights fraud if, if when multiple locations are not okay, if those, all those locations would be kind of run by the same county office and everything like that. And, and, and is that something you expect will kind of be part of the the legal arguments uh, later this week as they as they try to kind of sort this out? I think it's certainly a question the state should expect to have to answer before a federal judge. I mean, one of the if you're a judge considering this case, you're considering advantages and disadvantages, right? We know, I mean, it's hard to see how this decision does not at least inconvenience some voters, if not disenfranchise voters, which is what some of these lawsuits are arguing. So if the state doesn't have a compelling reason for doing that, it's easy to see why a judge would be skeptical of that. So we'll see what they say um, in court on this. Sure. Meanwhile, we've already started to kind of see the courts weigh in on various other cases. We had two rulings today, one related to the early voting period. Uh, walk us through that decision. So the governor in late July ordered an extension of the early voting period. This is the biggest change Texas has made to try and run a safe election during a pandemic, basically. He extended the early voting period by almost a week. And in September, a number of top state Republicans, including um, the chairman of the state party and some statewide elected officials, sued the governor and said, we think you're overstepping your authority in doing this. Uh, the governor has kind of leaned into his emergency powers to issue executive orders during the pandemic. The legislature is not in session. So he's kind of a one man, uh, a one man show trying to deal with that. So they said you're overstepping and um, you can't do this just by declaring it, this is something the legislature would have to consider. The Texas Supreme Court ruled this morning, they sided with the governor, they said, uh, it's too close to the election, we're not changing it, and so voters can expect to go to the polls early as soon as October 13th, um, which is terrifying because that is less than a week out. <laughs> yeah, hard to believe that we're, 
the the people will be at the polls in, in less than a week. Cassie, I think one thing that stood out to me about that lawsuit over early voting were the um, the plaintiffs in that suit, including, uh, I believe, the chairman of the state GOP. Um, should we take note at all of the uh, the kind of Republican on Republican violence here? Uh, uh, you know, um, it, it is. Uh, Alan West, the the chairman that that uh, Alan West ended up uh, beating, uh, you know, beating out for the for the position over the summer, uh, you know, wasn't as uh, let's say controversial or uh, you know confrontational as uh, the, the the Texas GOP has with its current chairman. Um, the Tribs Patrick Svitek actually uh, asked asked Chair West about this uh, at this year's Texas Tribune Festival, and you know, Chair West's answer was just you know. I'm a, I'm a person, a uh, rule of law person, and I'm going to stand on principle. And if that means uh, ruffling some feathers, then so be it. You know, this is this is where I'm going to stand. So, um, you know, it, it's more so just, I think, uh, kind of getting at this, uh, you know, unrest that uh, a faction of the GOP has kind of felt throughout the pandemic, uh, particularly critical of uh, the governor's response and how he's uh, handled uh, various shutdowns and, you know, responded to, to uh, you know, various elements of that. Um, I think there's probably more to come on it, uh, depending on how the, the legislative session uh, shakes out. You know, there's already been some, some, some talk of filing legislation to, to challenge or change uh, the executive, uh, you know, authority uh, under the disaster declaration. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, we'll we'll see uh, if anything uh, ends up coming of this. It's been interesting to watch for sure. One other just uh, court case uh, to mention here is the uh, the the state's lawsuit against Harris County, uh, in which the Harris County had tried to send mail-in ballots or mail-in ballot applications, excuse me, to uh, to all voters in in the county, uh, giving them the option to then fill it back in if they qualify and and vote absentee as opposed to in person. The Supreme Court weighed in on this as well Wednesday. Uh, Emma, can you tell us what happened there? In this case as well, um, the Texas Supreme Court sided with the state. So the state said Harris County wanted to send out applications. Important to say these are not mail-in ballots um, these, that are going out unsolicited. These would have been applications for mail-in ballots. You got to mail it back, then they send you a ballot if you're eligible. Um, the state, the Harris County wanted to send them to more than 2 million registered voters in the county that had never been done before. And the state said, you can't do that because not all of those voters will be eligible. We know that Texas has unusually strict criteria for who qualifies for a mail-in ballot. Harris County counters that um, any mailers they send out will be very clear about who's eligible. Um, but ultimately, the Texas Supreme Court sided with the state this morning and said Harris County cannot send out these ballot applications to all voters. They have sent them out already to voters um, age 65 or over who automatically qualify for absentee ballots in Texas. And um, the total they sent out is something over 200,000 applications so far, which is, I think, double what they saw in the last presidential election. Okay, thank you. We will now uh, talk, take a short break to for, hear from our sponsors before moving on to our next topic. Texas Farm Bureau. Get the latest in farm and ranch news, wildlife, and recap of the day's markets on Texas Ag Today, the only daily ag news podcast in Texas. More at Texas Farm Bureau. 
org slash radio. And the Texas State University System is Texas's first university system with seven institutions spanning 700 miles. More at tsus.edu. Okay, so Cassie, you mentioned in our last segment that there could be some legislation filed related to uh, the governor's powers during a pandemic. That, of course, assumes that there will be a legislative session. We are now 100 days out from the time when the next legislative session is supposed to start, speaking of uh, short timeframes that are terrifying to the reporters of the Texas Tribune. (laughs) You had an article today kind of looking at what a legislative session might look in the era of coronavirus. We've obviously seen in the past week or so the challenges that can erupt when a bunch of politicians are working in close quarters, uh, not going particularly well in Washington, D.C., what are you hearing about how the legislative session might look when we get to January and presumably this pandemic is not over? Watkins, before I answer, I need to correct the record. We're 97 days away (laughs) from the first day of session. Not 100, 97. And if you don't think that I'm keeping track, (laughs) <laughs> we, I regret the error. Thank you for thank you for saving me. <laughs> so, short answer is nobody knows what is going to um, nobody nobody knows what session is going to look like come January. Uh, there are so many things up in the air. Um, a lot of uh, lawmakers, um, you know, are viewing the, the virus and you know. Uh, you know, everything associated with it is, is more or less of a moving target. Um, a lot can happen between now and January. And so they're kind of, you're starting to hear and, and see a little bit of movement just on this front. Um, you know, conversations are starting to, to take place to the effect of, uh, you know, are we going to have screenings required before, uh, you know, anybody can enter the Texas Capitol? Okay, if so, uh, how often do those screenings or temperature checks or whatever sorts of protocols end up being put in place, how often do they need to happen? Um, you know, are we going to allow the public into the Capitol in the first place? If not, what does public testimony look like? And these are all just kind of being uh, asked in the context of, you know, the legislative process has, uh, you know, typically been one that's, that's uh, you know, characterized as, as uh, you know, the, the people's process or where people go to have public input. You know, every time a House member's on the floor announcing or recognizing a group, they say, welcome to your Texas House. And uh, at this point, it's just unclear whether uh, the, the outside, even, you know, us included, press wouldn't be allowed in. So all of that to say, um, no decisions have been made yet. Uh, unclear when those decisions will be made. And um, you know, I think that's not entirely out of the realm of possibility. You could have a different set of rules for the House and a different set of rules in the Senate. Um, and that would basically be based on not only the, the two different leadership styles and the two different, you know, kind of the characteristics that define each chamber, but just, you know, the bare fact that, uh, you know, 31 senators occupy the, the Senate and 150 members, uh, which means 150 desks sit on the House floor. You're just kind of dealing with two different worlds there. So, um, uh, if if you're not um, you know uh, worried just by all of this already, uh, you know uh, I don't know what to tell you because it's uh, nothing is uh, in focus yet. <laughs> who, who who decides this? Who uh, you know is it is it the governor? Is it 
is it the leaders of the respective chamber? We, of course, don't even know who will be in charge of the, the House come right, January. Right. Right. And that, you know, just in my conversations with members when I was reporting this story out, that's a, a big drawback for the House right now. Not only do you not know who your speaker is going to be because the current one's retiring, you know, uh, the control for the chamber uh, is in play, uh, you know, this November election. So um, would a Democrat speaker, uh, you know, have a different vision in terms of protocols uh, versus a Republican one? You know, who knows? Uh, TBD on that. Uh, but to, to go back to your question, um, it's my understanding that the that the governor, uh, you know, oversees capital grounds, uh, more or less, uh, because he chairs the State Preservation Board. Um, and then, you know, the Senate has its own set of rules, and then the House has its own set of rules. Um, now, what's preventing uh, interim hearings, at least in the House, from happening right now is the fact that the Capitol's closed, and it's been closed uh, for months at this point, you know, first for, for the coronavirus, and then... Uh, uh, you know, it was, um, you know, locked down again for, uh, you know, uh, all the protests that we saw play out over the summer. Um, and, you know, you've started to see, uh, you know, Democrats and, and Republicans in the House kind of call on Abbott to, to reopen just so that they can uh, attempt to get caught up on on their work that was supposed to happen over their interim, particularly with, with these committee hearings. Um, the Senate, on on the other hand, um, actually, uh, what was it Monday put two Senate hearings on its calendar, um, believe one for higher education and one for education. But, uh, you know, the way that, that those are being laid out, at least in these, these posting notices that, that go up online is that, um, only invited testimony is going to be allowed and all of that invited testimony is going to happen virtually. So, um, unclear, uh, you know, whether that, uh, process will actually end up being successful and whether uh, senators are looking to that as, as more or less of a trial run to see if if similar, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, guidance could be put in place on at least the Senate's end during session. Um, so, yeah. As you as you pointed out in your story about this this week, it's also a very important time for the legislature. You know, we've got the coronavirus still going on. It's going to be a difficult budget time. There's redistricting, uh, all this talk about law enforcement coming into the session and, and many other kind of big deal issues that are going to be, uh, you know, likely brought before the legislature. Do you get any sense that the uh, restricted nature of the Capitol now, the inability to hold hearings up at, until at least, you know, pretty soon, if it's, if it sounds mm -hmm. like the Senate's getting moving, has that hampered the ability to prepare? Are they going to be working from behind when, whenever they do finally get to convene? You know, I think that question probably varies. Um, and I think one big question kind of looming over all of this is, Will there be restrictions in place um, or will there be guidance issued to lawmakers that only a certain number of, of, of bills are going to be considered during during the regular session? Um, and so what I mean by that is, uh, you know, it was pretty common just in my conversations with folks over the past couple of weeks that people are not, you know, uh, writing off just yet the possibility that that the governor, um, you know, directs everybody to to meeting for a regular session to focus on the budget and then to gavel out and then to come back for a special session on redistricting. Um, you know, I was talking to Phil King, uh, a House member who chairs redistricting, and, you know, he, he just 
straight up said that he doesn't anticipate getting census data until June or July. And obviously lawmakers need that data to, to redraw the political maps for the redistricting cycle. And so both him and, and Dan Patrick over in the Senate, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, have said that they can see uh, multiple uh, special sessions happening next year, uh, potentially just even into the fall. And uh, I don't know. As you can tell, it uh, becomes pretty <laughs> – uh, the, the, the line of uh, talk uh, exploring what, what session looks like becomes pretty circular pretty fast because at the end of the day, uh, nobody knows yet what anything is going to look like. <laughs> I'll put a, a plug in for the Texas Tribune Festival, um, which is I, I heard Larry Taylor, who chairs the Senate Education Committee, make really interesting comments about this um, during his panel with our colleague, Leah, Leah Swaby. She asked him, have you given a lot of thought to like ongoing funding mechanisms for the huge school finance package that the legislature passed last session? And he said, we haven't even had a chance to talk about that because we haven't been having these interim hearings. Granted, this was a month ago. I don't know what all has changed. As, as Cassie said, there just went up some um, hearing notices, but that's a major question. I mean, that was a major question coming out of the 2019 session. So yeah. it's hard to see how how this helps to, to have had these delays. Um, I was talking to a Senate office actually uh, a week and a half ago, and uh, you know, a couple of the staffers in there were telling me that by this time two years ago, heading into the 2019 session, their office already had all of their legislation, uh, you know, mapped out. They knew the the language of, of bills that they were going to be, to be filing, to be drafting. They knew how many bills, uh, you know, their office was going to, going to author that session. And fast forward now to, to this time, uh, you know, same period two years ago, and they don't even have like, even half of what they, uh, you know, are expecting uh, mapped out yet. And that's mainly just because, you know, no, no official guidance is, to my knowledge, been issued on, okay, offices, you can only file a fourth or half of the legislation that you filed two years ago. Um, you know, I think it's just all going to come down to, to timing and, and what lawmakers and, and what state leaders want to want to focus on and, and when they want to focus on it. Yeah, well, stay tuned. Uh, a lot to be worked out, and we'll be keeping track of it as as the the leaders of the state government try to figure it out. That about does it for us this week. Thank you to Emma and Cassie. Thank you to our sponsors, Your Hand Texas. Sorry, Raise Your Hand Texas and the University of Houston Hobby School of Public Affairs. Also, the Texas Farm Bureau and the Texas State University System. Uh, thanks also to our producer, Michael Ray. We'll be back next week. See you then. You